In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. This is a podcast about psychology. Both Amy and I are psychologists. I am a health psychologist. I work predominantly with medically unwell patients and Amy works with kids Uh and adolescents. Yep. And week to week we choose a different topic and tonight we are going to be talking about psychology of humour in Melbourne where we live is the International Comedy Festival. So we were kind of a little bit interested in, I don't know, what psychology's got to say about it and stuff like that. Yeah. We've done a few serious pods of late and so we thought, you know, we might uh, just change tack a bit. We should just also be careful not to sell this as sort of, uh, you know, equivalent with the comedy festival. The, the quality of jokes will not be at that level. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what we're going to do, if you've not listened to this pod before, we will pick a topic and then we will talk about some of the research and theories and stuff. So both Amy and I have got some research articles. Amy is going to talk a little bit about humour formation in toddlers. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to talk about sort of a bit more of a theoretical and a researchy paper around the psychology of the humour of single words and that'll go into a bit of theory. Then Amy, you said you were going to talk a bit about humour in autism spectrum disorder. Yeah, comparing the sort of reactions to humour by kids with autism and those without. Yep, which should be really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to finish up with a discussion on humour in therapy as experienced by clients and clinicians. Sounds good. Uh, And then we will be finishing off with our usual things we came across segment right at the end of the show. And, you know, as usual, uh, we love it when people rate, review the show. If you can do that on Apple Podcasts, that would be super or wherever. And you can also follow us on Twitter if you ever want to email us a question. We've had a few emails of late and that's been really great to have some feedback from people. Um, we're two shrinks pod at gmail.com. <laughs> I yes, know that so I yeah. Set that account up. <laughs> um, and, our webs- and everything's two shrinks pod. Yeah. So. And our website's two shrinks pod.com. Yep. So, Beautiful. Amy, yes. take it away. Uh, So the first article I'm going to be talking about is called Early Humour Production and it's by Elena Hoika and Namira Akhtar and it was in the British Journal of Developmental Psychology from 2012. So this article talks about how humour is both a cognitive and a social process. So you kind of need to be aware of other people's responses but then you also need to understand norms and how they can be violated. Like there's an element of sort of setting something up and then undermining it or sort of, you know playing around with what's expected. So the earliest observations of humour production are in infancy. So it's usually imitating other people's behaviours and it's sort of physical sort of humour. So, you know, head waggling, expressions, stuff like that. So then this research, there's two different studies included in it. So one looks at videos of two and three-year-olds with their parents cracking jokes, for want of a better word. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is a survey of the broader population to find out if this mapped to a larger sample. So I'll go through the first one first. So they videoed two and three-year-old children and their parents in play. Uh, And so the parents were encouraged to joke around with their kids. The idea being that often humour is reciprocal. It's, you know, rare that it's one directional and that kids are more likely to crack jokes if their parents are already doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So they examined the novelty of the jokes, 
the type of humour that they showed and how the humour was cued. So things like smiling, laughing, that sort of thing. Yep. And then the parents were interviewed. So they had 43 parent-child dyads and the parents joked around with their kids for 10 minutes and it was recorded, their interaction between the two of them. The toys and things that were in the room were the same for everyone. So it sort of reduced the likelihood of there being an in-joke about a particular toy or something that was often done at home. Yeah. They were new toys to everybody. And then they monitored for a whole bunch of different factors. So the first one was novelty. So whether the child produced a new joke or whether they copied or sort of modified their parents' joke. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For this, they found that three-year-olds produced significantly more novel humour than copies or variations, whereas two-year-old children, it was more copies than variations. So they'd do the same thing back to their parents that had just been done to them. A significant majority of the novel acts didn't actually follow the parents cracking a joke or doing something funny within about sort of 10 seconds. Uh, whereas the other two jokes, it was sort of straight after. It was like the parent did something funny, then the kid responded within yeah, 10 yeah, seconds, yeah. which makes sense. They found that there are a whole range of different types of humour, so I might go through a few of them. They Excellent. kind of classified them, yeah. So there were object-based, so things like putting underwear on the head. Yep. Yep. Brushing a pot, drinking upside down from a cup, that sort of thing. Uh, label-based, so assigning the wrong label to an item, so like holding a cat and saying, here's a fish, calling daddy, mummy and vice versa. Conceptual, so making like a pig say moo and saying that a dog has three tails, things like that. Funny bodily actions, so silly walking, falling back and putting their legs in the air, pulling faces, making scary faces, that sort of thing. Tickling and chasing, so chasing friends or making puppets chase one another. Or saying to their parent, I'm going to get you and then tickling them. Mm -hmm. Taboo topics. So an example from one of the interviews was licking their parent. (laughs) (laughs) In the play sessions, they saw people doing stuff like spitting and saying it was disgusting. Or saying poo-poo head was the other thing. Um, And then peekaboo, hide and seek. You know, those kind of hiding under a blanket, things like that. Yep. So in terms of types of humour, boys were more likely to produce object-based humour. So putting underpants on the head stuff like that, than girls. Yep. And then the three-year-olds were more likely to produce conceptual humour and label-based humour than two-year-olds. So that's the stuff that's got that more cognitive element to it. So it's stuff like la- mislabeling an object. Yeah, yeah. Or mislabeling an activity, that the pig going moo, that sort of thing, which sort of fits with the idea of their cognitive development yep. improving. So in the second study, they sent out a bunch of surveys that essentially assessed the same thing but they wanted to look up to age four, so from zero to four, with a broader range of people. So 111 parents completed the survey and they looked at whether it was novel, how it was cued and the type of jokes that produced. And essentially, as you would expect, the amount of novelty increased with age. So as kids got older, they were more able to just spontaneously come out with their own joke that wasn't modified from someone else's behaviour. And... This sort of increased exponentially with each age level. All of the three-year-olds and most two-year-olds could produce novel jokes, uh, whereas only half of the one-year-olds could produce something that was novel. And almost everyone under one didn't produce anything that was novel. It was all reciprocal. Yeah. In terms of the cues, almost all children across all ages cued their humour. So they would look at their parent first, they would smile, they would laugh while doing something. 
something to let the parents know that it was a joke rather than something else. Like <laughs> although, not just pretending. Although I have to think with like they're not cueing it. It's it's because they think it's really funny and yeah. they can't contain it. <laughs> they just, this is just so amazing <laughs> that I'm about like, to do this like, thing. Like, got yeah. yeah, and they like they ruin the punchline because yeah. they can't get it out. Yeah, because right? they're too busy laughing for five minutes before they come out with the one word. <laughs> yeah. 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 And in terms of types of humour, most children produce peekaboo and hide and seek by one years old. They do tickling and chasing and funny body actions from one onwards. Then they do the object base, you know, underwear on the head, conceptual jokes, stuff about cow going bar or whatever. Um, And taboo topics, so stuff around sort of calling people poo-poo head and stuff like that from two years and then they come in with the label-based jokes last. Mm. So the the mislabeling things from three years. Mm. And it pretty much was the only gender difference was the one about physical object humour between kids. Otherwise, it was a pretty linear progression. It was quite interesting to see that it just built Mm. built on one another. Yeah. Which kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I liked how many types of humour there were. I wasn't expecting that. I'm kind of like... What would there be? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. Uh, I did in researching this pod, like I found something that talked about how humor between mums and their mm. children, and like sort of how that was linked to the bond between, yep. you know, and like how it's actually really important. Like you know, yeah, absolutely. Kind of, you know, and we'll talk a bit about it in the therapy thing, but you know, mm. like you can sort of see like it actually has got this really really great function. Absolutely. Of sharing something and connecting with an, with somebody else. Yeah. And when we get to the autism thing, I'll speak about that <laughs> as well because it's that same thing of like the reciprocity yep. between. Yeah, and that, that ability to let someone know what your intention is. Yeah. It's sort of, it's a, quite a complex thing. Yeah, and particularly for a young, young child, like, you know, sort of under two. Yeah. For them to be doing something funny mm. You know, they're kind of communicating this like complex set of thoughts yeah. to you yeah. in perhaps a non-verbal way. That's really quite amazing. It is. Uh, I saw um, my cousin's baby the other day who's five months, my yeah. six, and she was doing things that kind of fit with what some of this is talked about. So like, you know, my cousin was filling up a container and then she was tipping it out and the first time it was just kind of whatever. And then she saw that he smiled at yep. it so then she gave it another go and then gradually the more she did it the more that he laughed and the more that she kind of looked at him ready as she tipped it like yeah. come on this is going to be a thing we're going to do yeah and yet she's so tiny but is able to do that and see out a joke yeah like think about and it sort of action action, action this is action consequences yeah. you know oh i know i'm not meant to be doing this thing yeah but, but I've done this isn't thing. this funny like, yeah kind of funny yeah 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 interesting yeah <laughs> all right so my one's my one's called wriggly squiff lummox and boobs what makes some words funny so you've gone mature right from the start <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't write this paper um so my hunter mole can this is in the journal of experimental psychology general in 2019 so this year mm-hmm. and by chris westbury and jeff hollis from the university of alberta This is going to be a bit more of a dense Mm -hmm. or a bit more theoretical. So stick with me. So this group of researchers started on this work with a paper that had showed humor ratings of non-words could be well predicted from the statistical structure of these non-words. Okay. So they would, in their lab, they were doing lexical decision tasks Mm -hmm. and they found that some participants kept laughing 
at some of the non-words that okay, they're using yep. and often at the same ones. And so so they're like, oh, what's this about? Which immediately makes me think of like IQ testing with kids yep. and that there's a classroom task where you have to read non-words to test for things related to sort of processing of words. Yeah. And there's a bunch of them that they all just almost fall out of their chairs <laughs> laughing at. And it's kind of like, yeah, that is, that is a funny word. Yeah, that is funny, it's yeah. So their research is that these researchers, uh, their background seems to be studying in semantics and semantic processing. Mm-hmm. So that's a branch of linguistics concerned with the analysis of word meanings and relations between them. For anyone who's listening and is pedantic about word meaning, that's, yep. that's what semantic means. <laughs> so what they wanted to do in this paper is to look at humor ratings of single words as opposed to non-words in their earlier work. So the paper okay. we're talking about is about they actually use real words. So they wanted to take a very, very simple form of humor, so like strip everything back. Mm-hmm. And so they did a series of studies to look at this. So basically why, which single words are funny and why. Mm-hmm. So some theoretical background. Humor's complex. Yeah. If you compare like a slapstick silent movie mm-hmm. to a dirty limerick, yeah. like we we can both laugh at those, mm. but like what do they share in common, right? Yeah. And so they talk about it being a multidimensional construct. It's got cognitive, affective and action directed aspects. And they talk about that a lot of the quote unquote theories and they use sort of the theories in, mm-hmm. in finger marks and, and they actually draw attention to that it's because a lot of the theories are not really predictive. They sort of more explain after the fact why something's funny. Right. They can't predict in what advance will be funny. what is funny. And they just sort of describing when and that humor's experienced. And so they wanted to address this and put the science of humor on a more quantitative solid footing mm-hmm. and, and sort of talked about the fact that lo- lo- humor is kind of hard to quantify. Mm. So, that's why they want to do this. Yeah, so there's something about it that feels slightly sort of perverse or something. The idea of taking about something that's quite silly and fun and going, no, we want to know exactly why, which <laughs> elements of this we, are we can, going to be we, funny. We are going to work it out. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to create like, the perfect joke. Taking all the joy. I'm sure that that's <laughs> been like some kind of comedy thing. It's like we've got the, you know, the, the Comedy Tron 2000. Exactly. We've got the funniest joke and it's like, no. no. It's like, no. no you've taken it too far. Too, too far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so no word on um, from Chris and Jeff as to whether they've actually taken that step further. But we'll we, recommend it. We should we should. Email Mm. The um, <laughs> so they talk about a couple of theories to explain. So there's superiority theory and incongru incongruity. <laughs> incongruity. <laughs> so that so superiority theory is essentially just humorous denigration. So mm. the scorn for someone that we who makes themselves ridiculous through their own ignorance especially those who take themselves to be something other than what they are. So this is basically like when Amy is laughing at me in the pod, that's what's going on. <laughs> um, so it's great. True. They, they go, it's an, it's an old theory as in old as in Plato mm. um, discusses it in one of his dialogues in Philibus. And as much as I hate to talk about Donald Trump, uh, on this pod because I feel it gets far too much discussion. But they, they in their paper, used this example of Donald Trump saying that he invented the phrase priming the pump and they give this quote. He says, priming the pump. Have you heard that expression before? used before? Because I haven't heard it. I mean, I just I came up with it a couple of days ago and I thought it was good. Mm-hmm. That's an economist. And so they, as a listener, you can see what Trump does not, which is that he's ignorant of a commonly used phrase. Yeah. 
and vain enough to think you invented it, mm-hmm. right? So an- another example which they didn't talk about was like <laughs> when he was staring at the eclipse. Yeah. Like so this footy, if you've not seen <laughs> yeah. it, there's like there's everyone's outside the front of the White yeah, House, right? glasses on. And if you look at an eclipse, you need to have some kind of eye protection yeah. for yeah. all sorts of good reasons. There's the thing where you like, he just like looks straight at it and someone yells out, don't look at it. This is like so you yeah. know this that so that's that kind of you know yeah. enjoyment absolute, the, the enjoyment of someone being an absolute the, idiot right yeah. so and then there's incongruity theory mm-hmm. which is a clash of two contrasting frames of reference so the humor in a situation can arise in the incomprehensibility of the two so mm-hmm. which is the the, the cow going wink yeah right exactly so in this one Trump I invented it. And our own going, no, no you, you didn't, didn't right? <laughs> like, no. So, so you can have both theories operating at the same time, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Again, this has got ancient roots. Uh, there's a Roman statesman and philosopher, Marcus Cicero, who lived from, I had to look it up, 106 BC to 43 BC. Mm. So he wrote that the most common kind of joke is when we expect one thing and another is said, mm. in which case our disappointed expectation makes us laugh. Mm. So I think that that's kind of quite good. And then they have a proper translated quote. The cause of laughter in every case is simply the sudden perception of the incongruity between a concept and the real objects which have been thought through in some relation. And the laughter itself is just the expression of this incongruity. Mm. And it's interesting to think about this clashing of stuff, which is like in all those examples you talked about, there wasn't so much of a... There was a poo-poo head, which is a superiority. But then there was all that sort of like a variation on the incongruousness. Absolutely. Yeah. And they talk about, you know, the expectation doesn't need to be verbal. So Mm. if you give someone a potato inside an iPhone box as a present, right, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe not so much if you're the person... Getting the, yeah. But it would be funny when you throw the potato at that person. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they talk about that, that this theory is the most dominant theory. Mm-hmm. Again, there's some variations, this idea of humor surprise or ambivalence. And they, they all share this idea that humor is related to uncertainty and its resolution. Mm-hmm. But they point out that this is post hoc. They can explain why it was funny, but they can't predict what will be. Like, mm. So lots of things are unexpected or incongruous and they aren't funny. Yeah. Like, Oh, I unexpectedly got a parking ticket. Yeah. Not, Not that funny. funny no. Right? I remember watching my mum, she cooked sticky date pudding. Mm. And but we'd had a roast and so she poured gravy onto the pudding rather than yep. the, the the sticky date sauce, yep. the toffee sauce. Mm-hmm. Because it was exactly the same colour. She yeah. didn't find it funny in the slightest. The rest of you <laughs> <Right>? did. <laughs> I thought it was funny. I mean, yeah. and, and these authors talk about like sour, pouring sour milk into your coffee. You mm. know, that's not. And they also talked about there's a subset of incongruity theory, which is the juxtaposition theory. This is essentially laughing at a man slipping in a banana peel. So this is sort of a mechanical human mm. action that is experienced as funny. Yeah. <laughs> there's, some, there's something sort of inherently funny about this kind of the body doing something it shouldn't, mm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So they then talk about these theories and they can group them into semantic theories and information theoretic theories. So semantic theories are basically, they focus on the content of what is funny. Mm -hmm. So that's the superiority theory and the juxtaposition theory. Whereas incongruity theory and its variants are information theoretic. So that's essentially it's like, what's the probability of something happening and the structural complexity of this? Mm Mm-hmm. Both are, like I said, compatible with each other. You know, something can be unexpected, but also a topic that is, or category is funny. So public coughing fit, not that funny. Public farting, 
that seems to be funny. Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But they're both sort of improbable, yeah. right? So, and, and they talk about the body excretory and sexual functions that just seem to be this like special class of mm. humour. Yeah. That, that seems separate from other things. Yeah. This is mechanical nature of our existence and the mere reference to mere reference to those things are often a source of humour. Mm. And, you know, school kids often find the word fart yeah. funny. Yeah. And essentially it's a single word joke, mm. right? Yeah. Like I sort of said, in an early study, they looked at meaningless words which they said were the world's worst jokes. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they said in this paper, they want to work, look at the world's uh, second worst jokes, which was actual words. Yeah. And the non-words were like words like quaban and himalana. And they sort of were able to predict humor ratings for them from the average component letters. Mm-hmm. So uh, does that mean that some letters are funnier than... Yep. So, the, yeah. so there's... A Double O. Wow, did you read the paper? No, no, yeah, but I was wow. just thinking about what kind of because it's something about the ooh kind of sound that feels <laughs> feels funny. You're ruining my punchline, oh, sorry. Donaldson. The um, so <laughs> they yeah, that's one of the things they wanted to look at, right? Mm. So they wanted to use words, not non-words, as words have meaning. They wanted to take this into account. Mm-hmm. So a bit of science around it, you can reliably model semantics by looking at word co-occurrence. So how often. Does a word occur close to another word in text? Okay, right? yeah. Related words will co-occur more often close together. Mm-hmm. And and these patterns of words, you, word use tells us about word meaning. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's rare that you speak about giraffes and spectacles in the same sentence. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So I would explain to you... How they did that? Yeah, it's really complicated. <laughs> it's like there was unnecessarily. I so for a podcast looked, format. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, there, there was vectors, oh. and then there was discussion of cosine Ooh. and uh, uh, transformations, oh, wow. and all sorts of really good stuff. I'm, I'm going to show you some. And that this this paper, if you want to listeners, if you want to look up a paper that has not only like a n- nice normal distribution, nice, but then they've got. A correlation plot of word vectors. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. And then there's a couple of tables and then they've got some more absolutely stunning oh, graphs. You could, you could print those and, and put and them in a that. frame and That's just... great. Yeah. So, look, um, props to the authors. <laughs> and, and also, like, in terms of actually visually representing the data, mm. like, amazing. Anyway, awesome. Uh, not so good for an audio format. <laughs> so, but they talked about, like, say, so the 10 closest words to the word humour, mm. uh, wit, irreverence, witty, humorous, levity, satire, comedic, playfulness, whimsy, hilarity. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like thesaurus yep. type scenario. All right, so with me so far? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the study, they had humor ratings for about 5,000 words and most words are not funny. So yep. like two out of five funniness, right? But there was a slightly slightly skewed distribution with a high number of words rated very funny, so four out of five or higher mm-hmm. um, than you would expect not in a normal distribution. And so they looked at the semantic properties of those words, the, the most funny words. Mm-hmm. So semantically, they had themes of humorous denigration, so... Twit, buffoon, nimrod, blockhead, mm-hmm. those kinds of words, they're clustered together. The There's ones you use every day. Yep. yep. <laughs> Animal words, hippo, mutt, chimp, baboon, dingo. Mm-hmm. Body words, pecker, crotch, penis, pubes, sphincter, scrotum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amy's trying to repress laughter at this point. Words related to good times, so food, so fruitcake, strudel, um, goulash, humour, there's like chuckle, giggle, fun, the so music, pop, bop, funk, boogie. Mm. 
So they found like a, a phonological similarity between some words. So waddle, tickle, tingle, nibble, gaggle, squabble. So it's mm. the L-E yep. kind of thing, but also like double words. So over-representation of words with double letters. So putt, potty, whiff, kisser. Mm. But particularly those with like the oo sound. Mm. And because they're Canadian, they go, or like as in the Canadian aboot. Uh, <laughs> um, and so like things, words like smooch, yahoo, mm. bloomers, hooter, booby, mm. right? This paper was complex, right? Yep. So they did three studies to model the humor judgment data and tested the semantic theories focusing on the word meanings and the information theoretic theories. So one study they did linear regression model to quantify predictors and then they created a full model and then they did two more studies to validate that model. <laughs> Right. I'm really getting the whole semantic vibe here. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then they looked at it in a sample of 45,000 words. Fantastic. It was like, what? (laughs) So, okay. So the findings, Mm. words with the oo sound in them. Mm -hmm. So they're not really sure why. They seem to think that maybe they just hit a lot of the semantic areas that are funny. So sex, pubes, boob, nude, hooter, Mm. like... And then insults, you know, buffoon, stooge, goof, as well as animals like buffoon mm. or fruit cake, like mm. the, the ooh. So they, perhaps it's like the double letter sounds just actually hits lots of semantic kinds of things. Words with a letter K in it, mm-hmm. right, seem to be over-represented. And th- they may also be related to sort of semantic yeah. things. And they have this great quote from this comedian. So 57 years in this business, you learn a few things. You know what words are funny and which words are not. Alka-Seltzer is funny. You say Alka-Seltzer, you get a laugh. Words with K of them are funny. Casey Stingle, that's a funny name. Robert Taylor, it's not funny. Cupcake's funny. Tomato's not funny. Cookie's funny. Cucumber's funny. Khaki's, Cleveland, Cleveland's funny. Maryland, not funny. Then there's chicken. Chicken's funny. Pickle is funny. <laughs> so, that's great. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and they talked about like words ending in L-E, giggle, waddle, chuckle, wiggle. Mm. So I thought they finished off quite nicely and they said that our results paint a clear picture of the ideal funny word. It is short, an infrequent word composed of uncommon letters that is likely to include one or more specific letter or phonemes, oo, a consonant L-E, a Y and or a K, with an animate or animacy-related referent, especially one that is human and insulting, profane, diminutive and or related to good times. <laughs> Science. Amy. Science, They've yep. worked out the funniest word. <laughs> but I thought it was sort of interesting. It's interesting. To sort of look at the... And the it does make you wonder why some of those words, like the oo in particular. Yeah. There's something fun about saying it. And like, you mm. know, I think there's a, a pleasure in... In saying some You words. can extend it as well, that one. Yeah. I know, there's... Yeah. And there's something funny about the harshness of a K. Yep. I don't know why. Yeah. But it's <laughs> definitive. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> so where are you taking this? All right. So the second article I've got is called Facial Feedback and Social Input. Effects on Laughter and Enjoyment in Children with Autism Spectrum Disorders. And it's Molly Helt and Deborah Fine in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders. So this article is an unusual one for me because I feel like it's rare that we come across articles that are experimental, apart from sort of clinical work where it's kind of comparing a couple of conditions. It's pretty rare in the stuff that I read day to day where it's got like we're going to, you know, mess around with this one activity in an Mm. experimental setting. But this one's got that. So I was quite interested. 
But essentially it talks about how a whole bunch of different information informs whether something's funny or not in the moment. So other people's reactions, our own facial feedback, so things like feeling ourselves smile mm-hmm. uh, and then the eternal experience of enjoyment. So whether we, you know, emotionally or cognitively kind of go, yeah, that was funny. So socially, humour is something that's amplified through a feedback loop. So, you know, seeing other people's enjoyment then makes us mirror that enjoyment and respond, which then increases their enjoyment, but then also physiologically Mm. our own. Mm -hmm. And on a neuro level, it sort of, you know, it activates those mirror neurons and kicks that in as well. So it's often funny, like, you know, when you ever get stuck laughing at someone else laughing it's that kind of process yeah yeah like watching children laugh can be funny Mm. but also like i worked in a cinema when i was going through university and it was really interesting because you would get to see you know the same bit same films over and over and over and you'd be like oh this film's funny i'll go in and watch this funny bit i know you know about an hour in there's this Mm. funny bit so you'd have the same movie at different times of the day and different crowd sizes yeah and you would see the difference in volume of laughter yeah. or amount of laughter yeah. when it's a full cinema versus an empty versus cinema. An empty like one. it's really, really interesting. Yeah. Or even whether you see comedy live or on your yes. own at home as well. Where you kind it's of much go, better with like a really, really revved up crowd. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. Um, and they spoke about how this is part of why all of those sitcoms for the past, you know, 20, 30 years have added in a laugh track. Because it cues you to laugh mm, mm. Uh, when you're just watching watching something that might be funny, but probably not as much as if you didn't have the laugh track yeah. going on as well. Previous research has found that exaggerating or limiting your facial expressions has an impact on your emotions. So, for example, if you're asked to raise your eyebrows before looking at something that's surprising, you rate it as more surprising. If you are asked to wrinkle your nose, you think that things smell worse. If you have like for people who have had injuries or paralysis they tend to have higher rates of depression than people who haven't had paralysis in the same area and then people who have had botox and who were depressed before having the botox if they have it in areas that are sort of frown lines they report an increase in mood their frown lines aren't activated hmm. so there's all of this stuff about how it feeds feeds back into itself so Botox for depression. Therapy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Also, then there's the whole attachment thing that I could rant about. Have I ranted about that on the podcast before? No, what's that? There's been recent issues in LA in particular yep. where there's a lot of Botox. Yeah. Uh, where they've been having to run parenting groups for mothers who infants are showing the same signs as what you see with postnatal depression in that the feedback isn't happening emotionally and the connection between the mother and baby isn't happening. Yeah, right. Because the yeah, baby's getting in, a flat in, face. Because in postnatal depression, the mum's depressed and so yep. they their, their affect is not yeah. as reactive, yeah. it's flatter. They like, don't do all of those exaggerated expressions yeah, we a, do around it's, babies. It's a bit attenuated and so yeah. the kids have a worse, well, I don't mm. know the root, but yeah, it's, they it's end worse up, for them. They end up flatter and, they, and the attachment is suffers. And so they're finding the same things with people who are having... Botox. Wow. Yeah, because their facial muscles aren't moving and the babies are confused. So it's interesting. But so the processes of this kind of social feedback, mimicking other people's responses and then emotional contagion of picking up on other people's emotions are all disrupted in autism. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the extent of the disruption matches the severity of autism yep. as a general rule. So the current study wanted to look at the relationship between facial feedback, social amplification, and a range of facial affect and cues and ASD severity. So what they did was that they matched children with autism to those who were developmentally the same age, but were who, who were typically developing. And they showed them cartoons. Like normally developing. Yeah. Normally developing, yeah. yep. So no known developmental issues. And they showed them cartoons in four different conditions. So so a two-year-old would be matched with a two-year-old? Not necessarily. Oh, okay. So, so the like range... A, so like a, the developmental age yeah. of a normal child, yeah. quote-unquote normal child, with a yeah. child with autism... It might be the same or it might be different. It might be at the equivalent yeah. developmental stage but not necessarily the chronological age. Exactly. Correct. So yeah. like the age range for the ASD group was 8 to 14 years. The age range for the typically developing kids was 6 to 14. Yeah. So there might have been some where there was a bit of a, a, bit of a mismatch between the two. Yeah. But so they matched them on that. They found that there wasn't any sort of gender differences. So they, it didn't matter in terms of matching gender. They just went for developmental age. So they had 43 children with autism, 43 without. Oh, I should say that it was a pre- predominantly male sample because autism is more yeah. prominent. Uh, so it's about 90% in the ASD sample male and 80 in the mm. typically developing kids sample. Uh, and so they had them watch cartoons under four conditions. The first one was just on their own and it was done either at their school or at the lab or their home but they watched cartoons on a laptop on their own the second one was holding a pencil in their mouth between their teeth Mm -hmm. so that it put their face into the expression of a smile so if you do it across ways Mm -hmm. you your muscles are in that position the experimenters modeled it yeah because it's funny because like as you say that like i'm smiling imagining it and i'm finding it funny yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) the experimenters showed them how to do it because the thing that cues it is not just your mouth in the position, but your eyes, those the muscles that are related to smiling in your eyes as well. Yep. And so they modelled that at the same time and then the kids were more likely to do that when they had a pencil between yep. their teeth. And it's, and it's interesting, just like as a complete aside, yep. I did a bit of community radio and they talked about talking with a smile. Yep. And, and you can hear the difference. And you can hear the difference, mm. right? Like... And you'll be able to hear Amy and I at times when we're smiling and if I haven't edited it out, yeah. like, but like, you know, where, you know, we are smiling versus like just talking very seriously mm. and not smiling at all. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. It changes the quality of yeah. what's going on. The third condition was with a laugh track superimposed onto the cartoon. So like you would have in a sitcom. Yeah. And then the fourth one was with a friend or a caregiver sitting with them. So the kids who did this at school had a classmate who they were friendly with, come and sit with them. The ones who did it at the lab or at home had a parent. And so the children completed a bunch of measures. For the kids with ASD, there was an added measure about their autism symptoms. And then they were asked to watch a series of eight Tom and Jerry cartoons. And then after each clip, they were asked to rate their enjoyment of the clip. So they watched, they videotaped all of the kids while they were watching it. They also videotaped the person next to them in the conditions where there was someone next to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they coded for a bunch of different variables. The first thing was that they coded for whether or not the child was primarily smiling or laughing in each five second block of a cartoon. So if for at least half of the time 
they were smiling or laughing in that five seconds, that was like a yes. Yeah. And if it was less than that, that was a no for that block. Uh, and then in the condition with the companion, they recorded and coded their face as well and the timestamp so they could match it side by side. In terms of the results, they found that enjoyment... <laughs> What's <laughs> <you're> so funny? <laughs> it's the look on your face. You look intense. Oh, this is interesting. Inter- it is, yeah. So for typically developing kids, there was higher enjoyment across the three conditions that were kind of to do with enhancing enjoyment. So the pencil, the, lo- the, the laugh track. And the a friend. Friend. Yeah. Then the control condition. And... Watching the cartoons alone or with a companion was similar across both groups with in terms of level of enjoyment. Mm-hmm. They both kind of agreed on that. But the ASD group rated the pencil feedback group and the laugh track conditions less enjoyable than the typically developing group. So mm-hmm. they didn't kind of respond to those cues yeah, in right. the same way. In terms of observed laughter and smiling... The AST kids showed more positive affect watching cartoons alone than the typically developing kids. Mm. Typically developing kids showed more positive affect in the laugh track than the ASD kids. And the ASD kids demonstrated significantly less positive affect in the laugh track than the control. Whereas for the typically developing kids, it was the opposite. So for them, it seemed to get in the way of their enjoyment. Whereas for the typically developing kids, it enhanced their enjoyment. Mm. Yeah. So, so it sounds like the, the social feedback mm. and the pencil, which is the physical feedback, yeah. those loops weren't working weren't so well working. for the ASD kids. Exactly, is that right? yeah. Whereas, like, Whereas for the typically developing kids, that yeah. upped their enjoyment. Whereas, so, And then there were the ASD kids found that watching by themselves was the best. Yeah. 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 Uh, in terms of companions, the caregivers of kids with ASD laughed and smiled more than those of typically developing kids, which was interesting. So separate mm. from what they were doing, they just expressed more. The friends weren't significantly different in how Maybe much they responded. Maybe just the ASD kids were just like super more embarrassed about their parents like overdoing <laughs> it. Just like. I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, mum, you told me to do this freaking lab. Why are we here? I'm going to write to the authors. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the ASD kids were less likely to laugh in synchrony with their companions yeah. than the typically developing kids. So there was far more of kind of a, a delay or them just laughing of their own accord, whereas I think it was a five-second window between when the typically developing kids, their friend or parent laughed, then they'd laugh as well. So yeah, it kind right. of, it matched. They were laughing together, whereas the ASD kids were laughing at what was funny but not in sync. In terms of the relationship to severity, they found that there were correlations between emotional empathy, facial feedback, sensitivity to a laugh track and sensitivity to the companion's laughter in both groups. There's interrelations between all of those things. So if your emotional empathy was higher, then you were more likely to react to the pencil and to the laugh track and to your companion Mm -hmm. and, you know, everything was linked. Uh, As expected, the kids with more severe ASD symptoms showed less increased enjoyment during the feedback and laughing track conditions. So it didn't seem to trigger any of that kind of feedback loop that you see with typically developing kids. Yeah, right. Severity was unrelated to the response of their companion. Yeah. So that seemed to be the one condition where it was a little bit different. The interesting thing was was that when they kind of pulled everything apart and looked at what it was about the ASD symptoms that was getting in the way, mm-hmm. they found that it was about the range of facial affect in the kids. So the kids 
from both typically developing and ASD groups who didn't show so much emotion on their face that it was more constricted. They were less impacted by any of the feedback than the ones with more. So it was like they almost already had inbuilt those systems that weren't quite functioning regardless of an ASD diagnosis or not. Mm. So there's something about that feedback loop that the authors were quite interested in and kind of like, well, how do we... How do we tease this apart neurologically? Yeah, because, yeah, because you, could, you could imagine that you would get that there are some people who I would say are humorless mm. or like not that reactive yeah. to stuff and some people are way more. Yeah. And that's not, you know, dependent on an ASD no. diagnosis. And it's so, yeah, you could imagine that like there's a shared mechanism yeah. there or something. Yeah, and it's not like if you just pop a pencil in the teeth of the ones who usually are humorless that they're going to come back and come up to the same level as some of yep. the others. It's kind of proportional. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. And I kind of, I like I work with a lot of kids who have ASD plus other stuff going on and this definitely fit particularly for ones who are older and who are, the humour of their friends is changing from, yeah, right. you know, the childhood kind of stuff through to the more complex stuff of adolescence and late childhood, you know, sarcasm and stuff like that, more wordplay, that sort of thing. It's all out of sync. Yeah. So there's often kind of like, are they laughing at me? Or I was laughing at that, but I laughed at that later. Mm. What happened there? We weren't all laughing together. We mustn't be getting along. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I was reading through this going, this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. How mm. interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, and just tying it to the next article, mm. like when you're working with a ASD client or something like that, imagine that really not having that feedback really does change how you build rapport yeah. with that child. Especially if there's mood symptoms going on at the same time. It mm. can be hard to assess how bad their mood is because it looks flat all the time. Yeah, And right. so it's kind of like, is today a bad day or... You have to rely on not. other indicators. Yeah. yeah, and on their own self-report a lot of the time. Yeah. But th I also have noticed that there's a few where... When they enjoy things, they really enjoy things. So there'll be a, like an explosion of laughter. It's not like just a little giggle. Yeah, right. It's from flat to absolute laughing so much that I've had people knock on my door and kind of go, is everything okay? <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like there's there's something in that ability to kind of map how they're feeling on yeah, their so faces. Yeah, so they can actually do humour, but it's, yeah. it's the, the, the feedback... Uh, mechanisms yeah. are, are awry. Yeah. Like and sometimes there's a thing where I'll think that something's funny and it won't quite match what they think's funny. We might yeah. both be laughing, but then when you actually talk about it, you're kind of like, we're laughing at different things. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Which can happen with kids anyway, because developmentally. I think for me, more like, uh, like I'll be, I'll find something funny in therapy. And, and, and they won't. Yeah. More often than not, they like, There'll be something about it that triggers off like a in like a sort of internal thought process, mm. and you just like and this that person thought. is telling me something really important, <laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm just I've just got to like sit on this, yeah. <laughs> just contain the feeling. I, I, for a period of time, I had this like there was this one sort of bit from a Family Guy episode, Star yeah. Wars Family Guy episode, <laughs> that for some reason would periodically get triggered when I was talking to people <laughs> in therapy. It would be completely unrelated. But it would just pop But there was it. this particular kind of humour and it would just, and I just, I, I would just be like, oh my God, I don't, why is this funny? <laughs> anyway, so I mean, so I, what I wanted to do to sort of yeah. bring it back to, to the work that I do 
was uh, the, the, this article is uh, by Neil Gibson and Digby Tantum, mm-hmm. and it's called The Best Medicine Psychotherapist's Experience of the Impact of Humor on the Process mm-hmm. of Psychotherapy. Nice. So please jump in with your experiences. Yeah. This was in written in Existential Analysis, January 2018. I, I guess what I was thinking about when I was thinking about the humor stuff is like I wanted to understand a bit about the science of it, but then also therapy, humor mm. in therapy – you know, is this sort of interesting double-edged. Yeah. And it's so important. Well, at least in my work it is. And I had a look for the same kind of, for something that was related to humour in kid therapy because I thought there'd have to be something because there's, I laugh more in this job than. You would definitely laugh more than I would, I would uh, suggest. Yeah, I'm laughing a lot. And it's, it's odd in some ways in that there'll be lots of laughter interspersed with incredibly serious like two minutes of something that's just devastating and then it will be laughter again and then it will drop back down and it's almost like for kids to be able to tolerate processing some horrific stuff yeah they have to break it up with humor yeah because kids Uh, kids sort of what i noticed with kids is they dip in and out of of negative kind of very, very, self-regulating. very, very, very quickly. Yeah. Like whereas an adult you might be able to talk about it for a couple of minutes. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. But it's so important. Yeah. And so they, they sort of talk about, you know, there's a few direct studies of humor in psychotherapy, but humor is ubiquitous and it's a complex phenomenon mm. and it's frequently present when you're working clinically. And so they wanted to look at, get an insight into what therapists' ex- lived experience of humour is with their patients. Mm-hmm. And also to, because a lot of therapists do therapy themselves, mm. they wanted to get their experiences of being a, a client. Okay, yeah, so same people but either side of the but coin. But the other side of the coin. And they wanted to know how it sort of impacts. So basically it's like to help other therapists by increasing this understanding of mm-hmm. this kind of phenomenon, right? So they did a qualitative study. Mm -hmm. There was an interpretive phenomenological analysis, Mm -hmm. which apparently is different to a grounded theory or Mm. discourse analysis. Mm, It is. The description of it was... um, Lengthy. Thorough. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I will, will, you know, I just... Yeah, if you want to read about it, you can. Yeah. um, so So this is a UK study. They got six participants, which doesn't seem like that much, but, you know, qualitative study, six six to ten participants can be frequently a lot of data. You go for that um, sort of wanky thing of reaching saturation. Yeah. I mean, it sounds sounds wanky, but it's actually quite... true. Yeah. Yeah. You can, after a couple of times, you probably... Yeah. The same themes end up coming up again and again. Yeah. Yeah. So, they... It was recruited by word of mouth notice board at psychotherapy training institutes. They got participants who are all qualified practicing psychotherapists mm-hmm. and registered the British Psychoanalytic Council and requires four years of training alongside ongoing personal psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to get like sort of a fairly homogenous group. So currently practicing qualified mm-hmm. minimum of four years personal psychotherapy. They didn't choose all therapists who are existential in approach. Obviously, mm-hmm. these are existential authors. But they wanted to kind of get a little bit of heterogeneity. Yep. And they wanted Western backgrounds just because of this like cultural humour. Mm. There's a fairly humour between cultures can be quite different. Quite different. And they got males and females. Mm-hmm. Age range 36 to 61. Mm-hmm. 60 minutes for the interviews. Two questions really. Can you tell me about any experiences you've had where humour has made an impact on the process of your clinical work? Mm-hmm. And can tell me any instances where humour has had an impact on the process of your own therapy. Okay. So 
Like, so quite open. Yeah, yeah. quite open. Because yeah, immediately I'm having a whole bunch of different times where I've asked a question that I didn't mean to ask or that something's come out in a ridiculous way. Yeah. Particularly, you know, Monday morning for me is just comedy gold because <laughs> my brain is not quite there. And the it's often created ongoing jokes with clients, so particular phrases or things that are kind of in jokes where yeah. they'll refer to it weeks down the track yeah. and we'll both have a laugh about the kind of misunderstanding or the the gap between or whatever it might be yeah. and it, it does serve that function of like continually linking you with that person. Yeah. Like it, yeah, it does more than if you... Yeah, so it's, it's a really, really interesting thing. So from the interviews, they identified some emerging themes mm-hmm. and sort of going straight to the results, they they talked about that the impact of humour could generate greater energy in sessions mm. and also made the other more appealing, Yeah, which is sort of what I was yeah. talking about. And they also talked about like including sexual attraction, mm. which I thought was an interesting comment. They sort of talked about some participants described feeling seduced by their clients. Mm. I wasn't quite sure whether they thought it was sort of sexual seduction or kind of, you know, whether you're like, because I think... Like you, a social kind yeah, like of... Yeah, like a social yeah. seduction. Yeah. I was thinking about like I had a patient who I noticed there was a pattern of us always laughing in therapy mm. and like I would see his name on the list yeah, and I'd be like, awesome. Yeah. And then what was interesting was, and, and they talk about it in here with that participant, it, was, it deflected mm. stuff. Yeah. And so like eventually like I call, like I did a process comment, I called it on this mm. guy and said, what's this about? And it was related to him and the way he didn't want to show yeah. other emotions yeah. and things like that. So it was really, really interesting. Um, and it is often informative like about where the line is of too much humour or not enough or whatever. Sometimes when you feel like it's taking over the session, it's kind of like, well, what's this actually about? Mm. Are we – is it filling time <laughs> or delaying that kind of – Like are we doing any – what would therapists would call work? Is yeah, that sort of what you mean? Yeah, yeah, that deflecting – it's usually deflecting some other emotion. Yeah. But sort of, yeah, filling in those opportunities for silence or for space yeah. with a joke that then – deflects the attention yeah or like i often think about conversations Mm. in a therapy room being on different levels and that you can be talking about something serious and be laughing about it Mm. but then you can be talking about something not serious and laughing about it but that kind of laughter is very different different yeah it feels different that kind of thing so i mean they talk in this study about using humorous metaphor in therapy Mm -hmm. with a prim and proper client to depict their therapeutic endeavor and it's like you know where we're hippos rolling in the mud getting filthy and loving it (laughs) yeah and sort of like that kind of helped like Mm -hmm. sort of disrupt things disrupt things Mm. yeah and they sort of talked about that humor has this potential to reveal elements of dominance and passivity Mm -hmm. So, and humor can like level the playing field, Mm. reduce defensiveness. Yeah. Particularly if you've got someone who's kind of trying to be very, very respectful Mm. and you, uh, you know, make light of yourself. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. 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 Like I remember seeing like someone close to me was having medical treatment and has seen a psychologist Mm. through that process and I was dropping them off or picking them up at the, the therapy appointment. And the therapist had like she had a cardigan on inside out. Yeah. Like and then she like like and we all found it really, really funny. Yeah. And there was this really natural like, not that this person was hoity toity like I'm yeah. probably but it levels it like so we're all humans here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Like there's a connection here. Yeah. Like, yeah, look, we're in different roles, but yeah. I can connect to you. Yeah. And, and like as we've talked lots of times on 
on this pod that that's the most important part of therapy. Mm. Like it's the connection. Yeah. yeah. So we could talk about control in, in relationships in a way that once you've laughed about stuff mm. in a way that you couldn't before, mm. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and they sort of talked about the psychological shifts often flow following humor. Mm-hmm. The therapy can change the way you feel about your clients and therapists or vice versa. I but don't know if they talk about it in here, but I also noticed that with some people when you hit a particular nerve that resonates, their response is to laugh. Yeah. And that that in itself is informative and then you can go off in that direction. Like you'll reflect something back to them and then the response is this kind of surprised laughter and then it's followed usually by something that's really important Mm -hmm. and profound Mm -hmm. but it's almost like their involuntary response Mm -hmm. to you hitting the nail on the head is sort of a, (laughs) oh, and then they go from there. And so a lot of laughter I think with older clients in particular, it's it's got that dynamic to it of kind Mm -hmm. of like yeah, sort of like a moment of relief before – Delving into the hardest yeah, stuff. Because if you think about emotion, mm. it's easier to laugh mm. than it is to express negative emotion. Yeah. Like it's safer in a way. Yeah. Like, and I was actually working with someone today, mm. and yeah, there was like a particular circumstance that was a little bit unfortunate. It wasn't tragic, but the response was laughing. And shock when, often, often accompanies yeah. laughter as well. Yeah, like but really, that, yeah, when yeah. really, like, I was like, were you frustrated about yeah. that happening? He's like, yes, it definitely yeah. was. Yeah. Like, you know, but. Yeah. But also like this idea of like that if you ha- – they, they, the authors mentioned like, you know, if you have a therapist without a sense of humor, mm. like that's disturbing, mm. right? Being the blank slate. Yeah. Is – it's really hard to build a connection with someone. Yeah. If, yeah. yeah. There's a way of being a blank slate and not giving much away to push someone to talk, mm. right? And that's a particular therapeutic strategy. Mm. But there's some people who – adopt that a lot yeah. and I think I personally think that's 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 not good practice yeah. I had um, a couple of kids say to me that that there was just no like they've been surprised the first time I've laughed mm. with them and then they've, they've sort of you know they've seen another psychologist who's been far more strict strict about things mm. and who they kind of went this thing happened that was so funny and they didn't laugh and it's kind of like well, yeah, that is legitimately funny yeah like and, and like how could you trust someone that doesn't laugh at something that's funny yeah especially when you're a kid or a young person is kind of like you know attempting to build this relationship in a strange situation yeah. that it just yeah it doesn't work yeah and i i think i've i think i've definitely as a therapist i've laughed at situations mm. and used it to break a frame mm. like for me like laughing at something going oh, of course of course that other fucking thing happened yeah exactly you know yeah. like and you know but then kind of like owning that you know this is the way i respond to mm. stuff and yeah. i'm being human in this situation yeah. with you yeah let's pull this apart a bit but that's yeah. yeah but then then they also talked about you can use humor to like again break a frame of mm. reference so there's this thing in cognitive therapy about someone might have a critical thought a negative mm. thought about themselves right and then one of the ways in which you can challenge that negative thought is to really lean in on it yeah so really take yeah. it to its End point. Yeah, so I was working with someone and they're like, oh, that was the stupidest thing I could have done at Mm. that time. I've said, really? Mm. Okay. Is that true? Yeah. Right. And so the approach I took was like, well, what what could be stupider? Mm. 
yeah. what could have been stupider, yeah. right? And like, and use that humour to get into that mm. with that particular patient. Yeah. And that worked well. And so you can kind of assess and re-establish values and mm. things like that. Changes your perspective on the world or mm. yourself and that's a therapeutic endeavour, right? Mm. You can do this without humour, mm. but humour can kind of like shortcut it or like make yeah. it more powerful. And it way. often, there's something about it that if it's done well, it seems to grant you permission yeah. to go a little bit further with things than... Perhaps you might have got if you asked a, a straight yeah. question. Yep. There's something about it that's kind of like I'm willing to play with that a little bit. Yeah. but And then also like in therapy, like I think about there's this difference between cold cognitions and hot cognitions, yep. right? So cold cognitions like, oh, yeah, I can logically see that that was a stupid thing, mm. right? Whereas a hot cognition is like, oh, you know, like there's, there's like a, a thought but it's like it's got an emotional emotion, valence. Yep. And humour is a way in which you can actually attach emotional valence mm. to it, yep. right? And so and then as soon as you've got a positive valence, you can get into the negative mm. valence. Like yep. that system's activated. Yeah. So I always like that. And they, they talk about like there's this quote, the strength of the relationship just gave me the courage to sort of look into the abyss, you mm. know, and humour did very much form a part of that because it created a comfortable work environment to be comfortable in a way that it enabled me to be uncomfortable. Mm. You know, there's that joining moment, yeah. which I, you know, that, that, that rapport, you know, we're human, mm. we're fallible, yeah. let's look in this together. Yeah. I might not have your problems mm. or your situation or your circumstance, but hey, I'm I'm trying to join with you as much as I can. Yeah. They talked about, you know, there's these positive and negative impacts to human therapy in a similar way to a hot air balloon. Humor acts as a war- jet of warm air by which the client therapist can gain height mm-hmm. as a wider view of the world. But of course, too much or too little heat and that can imperil the journey. Mm. You can actually accidentally reinforce mm. the, like a power imbalance. Yeah. You know, particularly someone who's had a history of that. So you can inadvertently put someone down. Mm. Like if you make a joke. Yeah, that doesn't quite land. That doesn't quite land. Yeah. Right. And then there's this, they talk about there's a seduction mm. element, which is what we were talking about before, you know, which is that that, that non-genuine mm. relationship. I'm making the therapist laugh. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. I'm trying to make the client laugh. Yeah. That sort of entertainer rather than yeah, uh, yeah, relational. Yeah, yeah. If a patient who laughs a lot, you should call it. Yeah, you know, or make jokes. You say, "What's that about?" Yeah, you know, that's quite interesting. Mm. Or if, or, or you might want to call it, or you might actually mm. just kind of go, "Hmm." So we're joking yeah. a lot. So how do I need to change yeah. this conversation so we're not doing that? Yeah, right. Or, or the, if there's kind of laughter again and again about something that isn't funny, like yeah. like whereas one kind of Laugh or garrulous comment. laughter, is that what yeah, you call Yeah, or like, you know, one kind of, you know, offhanded kind of sarcastic comment or laughter might sort of facilitate things. It's kind of like, well, this is again and again and again that yeah. you're, you know, cracking jokes about yourself in this way yeah. or that it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, you actually need to stop and look at this. Like, yeah, I, I still think like it took me a while as a therapist to become comfortable. It's like if, if a person's telling me something, a funny story, mm. it's okay to laugh yeah. at that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. You know, and that's really important. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things like I often will use that kind of extending things like, oh, you probably, someone might say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm st- the stupidest or like, mm. and, I, and at times I've gone, I oh, like, yeah, you're definitely the worst client I've ever had. Mm. Yeah. Right. But like, and I've had it where I've, that's not landed well. Mm. And, <laughs> and, you know, you have to be really, really clear about like, look, 
what I'm this is why I'm doing that. I'm yep. really, really sorry that I've made that upset you because you can yep. see that. So like it is this double edged sword. Absolutely. Like I've got the opposite at the moment with with you know, someone who tends to put themselves down a lot and yep. we've started every now and then they'll be cracking jokes about them being the favourite client. And they started that first as a kind of reverse kind of self-deprecating thing mm. of like, why would anyone want to spend time with me? And then we've kind of flipped it and this, this humour continues in just little little bits and pieces, but it's kind of like taking it from you must resent having to spend time with me to I must be the absolute highlight of your week mm. kind of thing. Mm. And the contradiction between those things, every time we have one of those little jokes we both know what we're talking about and we both know that then that's an option to then branch off into that direction. Mm. But it's been done in like, it's one that I'm very careful of monitoring kind of going, you don't want it to be dismissive or to be kind of, Mm. it's that tricky thing of finding a balance. It's really hard. Yeah. And like, so you have to be quite cautious, Mm. you know, I mean, and they reference that, you know, there's lots of things you do as a therapist that can touch on, relationship dynamics that are implicit or explicit Mm. and that you you just need to as a therapist always be aware of that like the way i think about it's like if there's a blood spill Mm. right you take precautions and you assume that that's infectious yeah right yeah right and so when you're working in this way with people you should always be aware that how things can go wrong Mm. And so that... So and kind of keep an eye on it. So that you keep an eye on yeah. it. And then like over time you get better at it. But yeah. you, you do fuck up. Yeah. Right. And that's okay. Yeah. So I also feel like I'm getting better at actively checking on things. Like yeah. not just monitoring the reaction and kind of going with that kind of thing. But actively asking and just going like, is that going okay? Like is this... You know, us joking around, is that going all right? Or is, you know, did that cross a line or that Mm. sort of thing of... And often people are really surprised by that because they're not used to anybody in their life actually checking with them that something Mm. was okay. You say that and it makes me think I should do that a bit more. It's it's quite... It can open things up. You can get some um, blunt feedback but it's quite good you end up Mm. going places with it but also also like i like those kinds of questions i think are really good because you can because you might get some say yeah no i joke around like that a lot with people yeah or i never do that without you with people like and so either way it means something tells you something and that's very very interesting absolutely and then what's different about our relationship or yeah. what's yeah. why is it what function does it serve in the world and also that can like tell you yeah yeah, yeah mm. exactly right it's like because you can go like oh you because you can believe that they joke around with you but no one else mm. right and then but then when you realize oh that's the way they are with everyone yeah that puts it in a different frame mm. or like or if it's like no no i only ever do it and i often think about i won't want to make someone laugh mm. if they don't laugh in therapy but yeah. i often think about like my goal will be if someone's unreactive mm. that I want to get them to react. Yeah, in some way. In some way. Yeah. And the vice versa, if someone's like very, very reactive emotionally. Mm. You want to help them contain. You really want to help them contain yeah. it. Like I always say, psychologists, we're never happy. Yeah. <laughs> they're crying, yeah. we want to get them to stop crying. Yeah. If, they, if, if they're, they're not, not crying, like, we want to get them crying. Yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, they is that they kind of summarise very much in just what we're talking about. You know, that humour has a role. Mm-hmm on the whole, is a very serious enterprise mm. and we just need to be attuned to these negative and positive aspects of it. 
but the you know hu- humor is appealing to us because we're brought back into an awareness of ourselves and mm. the world. Humor can be used as sort of a cognitive sonar probe that generates perceptible echoes of otherwise invisible mental contents. <laughs> Which I think is a really, nice. yeah. really, really nice summarizing it. Lovely. So uh, why don't we leave it there? Yep. Take a break. Take a break, mm-hmm. and we'll be back with things you came across. Great. Suggest reasonable explanations for things. So we're on a break. Yes. Munching on some chocolate eggs. It's almost Easter. It is. Are you a chocolate egg fan? Yes. Easter time? Yes. Yes. Do you have a particular favourite? Uh, well, absolute favourite, if I can get it, mm-hmm. is like a mini egg with a hazelnut praline on the inside. Oh, right. Yep. But otherwise, I like I like a good bunny. Yep. So if you want to send a gift voucher to Amy uh, yep. for hazelnut praline eggs, yep. uh, to shrinkspod at gmail.com. Yeah. yeah, we would rather that you sent vouchers to us because by the time the chocolate goes through the post, it'll probably have that white, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah, this is about a pod where we say <laughs> thank you for listening. Mm. And last pod, we asked some listeners, like we asked listeners to... Uh, Send in photographs of their cats. Yes. We got a cat and a dog. Yes. I was very excited and yeah. glad that, you know, people were finally listening to my desperate pleas. Yes. So yep. thank you. Thank you. And so we, we tweeted them out. It. So if you are a listener that has an animal. Yes. That wants to become psychology famous. You know where to find us. On Twitter. Or you could just email us and then we could put it onto Twitter. Yeah. Either option works. Either option works. Yeah. Uh, you can follow us. What other things we normally say at this point? Oh, uh, there's know. like a there's there's a website thing yeah. where we put stuff and compulsively organize and reorganize. Uh, yeah, look, that's looking a little. Uh, I need to compulsively yep. reorganize in yes. the Easter holidays. That's that's my plan. Mm-hmm. I want to change some of the fonts. Really? But yeah, the fonts are good. Anyway, <laughs> just on the list, I'm not happy with the underlining. So, so it's we, fine. So we have. So we. So, we <laughs> so if you're looking, if you want to, if you can't. Bear scrolling through all the things on your podcast app. Yeah. You can look look at it, the podcast by topic, yeah. by number, and also you can look at the things we came across by topic as well. Which is so handy. Oh, super handy. So that's twoshrinkspod.com. Yeah. And then everything's two shrinks. If you just send it out into the ether, something will land at some point. Yeah. We've got a warehouse <laughs> <laughs> stocked with things that people have sent to us. Yeah. Do we? Yeah. <laughs> Two shrinks pod lane. <laughs> Two shrinks pod lane, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's just in the CBD in Melbourne. Exactly, yeah. It's got a coffee shop and a little gin distillery. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Two shrinks gin. <laughs> I would love that. What I also, you know, this is entirely irrelevant, but we've gone down this rabbit hole, is yeah. that I'm really enjoying that at my work email address, sometimes I get emails addressed to one shrink. <laughs> oh, <laughs> quite great i branding, appreciate branding yeah that's great i'll have take you, it have you, have you like then like gone into paint and, like and just changed <laughs> the two shrinks logo and just, just erased your head just erased me that's it <laughs> it's great so yeah two shrinks everywhere uh, yep. that's it. like us oh and send us you know comments and things on yep. on itunes yeah rate and review the show mm, um if five you stars. uh have a suggestion have a things we came across article mm-hmm. that you think we would find. Oh, that'd be amazing because I struggled this week. So yep. if you could do my homework for me, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, no, but we'd actually be totally up for a listener mm. things we came across. Book recommendations. Book recommendations. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
topic recommendations. Yep, so on and so forth. We've got a few, and so we're going to get onto those this year. Absolutely. Yes. Let's go to things we came across. Sounds good. Welcome back to Two Shrinks Pod. Uh, we've had a break and now we're going to end things with things we came across. Uh, we're still trying to decide who's going to go first. It's going to be me or, or you for this so one. So I've got, I've got, so this is part of the show where we talk about something odd. Something odd. You know, you're doing a research literature mm. review and like an article Come comes across. up that looks far more interesting than yeah. whatever it is that you're researching. Yeah. That's this segment. Exactly. Yeah. So, or to something that's, Talking about fancy. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about earworms. Yeah. What are you gonna talk about? Um, auricular amputations. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's go with mine first. Okay. So I I recently saw Lego Movie Two and have been talking about it nonstop like a five year old. Um, and uh, so it's really really great. And I've also been binging on a podcast called School of Movies. Mm-hmm. And so I went and saw Lego Movie Two, and then I was listening to this podcast, and they and they talked about Lego Movie Two, and there was like. There's the text of the movie and then the subtext of the movie and then the subtext of the subtext and the subtext of the subtext. <laughs> Beautiful. It was great. I mean, I don't normally want to, you know, listen to our podcast first and then other, the school of movies. Anyway, I was uh, lying in bed the other night at about 3 a.m. with one of the Lego Movie 2 songs mm-hmm. that got stuck in my head. And mm-hmm. if you have watched Lego Movie 2, you will know exactly which one. So long ago in this segment, you talked about earworms and because this earworm was in my head, I thought, I wonder what else is out there Mm -hmm. because this song was really stuck in my head. So this is actually from some Australian researchers. Uh, It's understanding the overlap between positive and negative involuntary cognitions using instrumental earworms by uh, Moak, Hyman Jr. and Taganagri. Mm -hmm. And they're from Flinders University and also Western Washington University. Flinders University is in... Adelaide. Yeah, South Australia. Could the likelihood of theme music getting stuck in your head depend on the emotional valence Mm. or how familiar you are with it? Mm -hmm. So they defined earworms as an involuntary musical imagery where a piece of music repeats a number of times without being recalled voluntarily. Yep. Ergo in the middle of the night. So in this study, they were interested in whether music's emotional valence would predict the occurrence of earworms and like whether the familiarity was important. Mm. So because I think you talked about it previously and it was sort of like, how do people get rid of it? Yeah, because I had something in my head and I couldn't get rid of it. Yeah. And so that's why I'd gone searching for it. Yeah. (laughs) Some, you know, evidence-based treatment. (laughs) Well, uh, someone had told me that you got to sing Tina Turner's Private Dancer. Yeah. And then actually... I don't know that uh, that... It does. It works. Anyway. Mm, Give it a go next time. Um, So they actually did a lab experiment, actually not Mm -hmm. unlike what you're talking about, Mm. uh, but up until this time, sort of any kind of research has looked at music with lyrics and they wanted to take that out because the lyrics can influence judgments people make about music's emotion mm-hmm. 
you know, so lyrics can detract from Bale's judgments essentially, change a positive music experience to a negative music mm. experience and stuff like that. Yeah. They <laughs> they induced earworms. Cruel. <laughs> Just torture. <laughs> so they expose. It's actually, they, they've actually listed the list of music, so it's not that bad. But also I wonder whether some people are more vulnerable to it than others. Yeah, Because I, I get this a lot. They... Did look at musical experiences, like, how like often musicians would you have and this? stuff, but they'd seem to think that it didn't actually play a role. Hmm. So how like, often would you have an earworm? It depends on how often my children are playing the Lego Two movie soundtrack at the moment. <laughs> the um, so they so they induced these earworms by playing instrumental film music and then measuring the subsequent involuntary thoughts mm-hmm. inside the lab. And then post the lab for the next eight hours. Okay. And then they looked at positive and negative music. So they based their music selections on ratings of how the music made the pilot participants feel Mm -hmm. while they were listening to it rather than how the music sounded, which is sort of emotional perception. So it's like, did this music make you feel good, Mm -hmm. essentially, or make you feel bad or something like that? Makes sense. And then also they they had this thing about familiarity. They wanted to use a a two-by-two design. So that's familiarity high, familiarity low by valence, positive, valence, negative. Mm -hmm. So like four conditions. But they had trouble... It was hard to get a negative high familiarity group. It's like like negative valence group. So positive high familiarity was the theme from 2001 Space Odyssey, Mm -hmm. Mission Impossible, Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. Everyone's probably just like (laughs) thinking about them. And Chariots of Fire. Okay, yeah. They're running on the beach. And Superman. Mm -hmm. Positive low familiarity was Canon in D, Jurassic Park, Pirates of Caribbean. Lord of the Rings and Love Actually. Mm-hmm. A negative low familiarity was Jaws, Psycho, Godfather, Halloween and Requiem for a Dream. Mm-hmm. So sort of just skipping to results, what they found, they effectively induced earworms. 94% of participants <laughs> experienced earworms inside <laughs> the lab and 62% over the subsequent eight hours. That's a lot. <laughs> that's right? a lot. Yeah, that's like, a lot. You would be high-fiving yourself as a researcher. Yeah. Anyway, they, um, <laughs> they found participants experienced a similar number of earworms regardless of the valence of, of mm-hmm. the emotional valence of the music. But the earworms differed in quality. Participants reported earworms for negative music as more distressing. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that. And subjectively less frequent than earworms for positive music. Hmm. The music familiarity didn't seem to have an effect on the presence or quality of earworms. But they seem okay. to think that maybe because they'd used non-original yeah. pieces that maybe the familiarity thing was not... Because they were probably... Thinking also little, without lyrics like, as well. Yeah, but I mean yeah. like I could think of what the Jurassic Park theme was, mm. right? You know, like, yeah. so, you know, I think that that's what I kind of pointed out. And then they had some interesting kind of things about like, so why you would actually do this is because it's like, it's interesting to think about involuntary cognitions mm. and earworms are a bunch of that. But Part of that. You could read about that in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <so> awesome. That's, <laughs> that's, that's just earworms, torture. Earworms updated, yeah. Jeez. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, now it's, oh, it's popped into my head. Oh, no. <laughs> it's going to be there forever, isn't it? So um, I have a very serious topic to oh, discuss. Really? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty bad. It's it's pretty serious. Yep. I want to talk about, and I I'm waiting for the moment when you realise what I'm talking about, because it might not be 
immediately obvious from the title, but I'm just going to keep going as I did when I read the article because the abstract was one line, so there was no hint at what... How do you get away with an abstract with one line? You'll see. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No. And you just you just, just let just, me know. You are building yeah, it up I know. a lot. Like, like. So the title is The Seasonality of Auricular Amputations in Rabbits by Yaram Chuck et al. in Laryngoscope 2017. Mm-hmm. So it was a medical article. So the authors speak about an increase in online reports and images of auricular amputation of confectionery rabbits that occurs during the spring, with the peak incidence near Easter. Human adults and children appear to be wholly responsible for the reports of rabbit auricular amputations. So Do like ears? Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about yet? Easter. Oh, right. Chocolate rabbits. Yep. Eating the ears. <laughs> eating ears. <laughs> That's where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> So, online research indicates that 59% of people prefer to eat chocolate rabbits starting with the ears. Yep. 33% had no preferred starting point. Yep. And 4% indicated they started with the tail or feet. Mm. I would just like to pause here and say what is going on with... That 34%. What are they doing? Like, what do you mean no preferred starting point? Do they just turn it on its side and eat it like a corn on the cob? Yeah. What's, what's wrong with society? Yeah. Anyway, no. Well, clearly, like the the ears are the 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 the, the focal point. Like it's you the top. would think so. So so this author is very you know and colleagues are very concerned about about the sort of prevalence of this issue. <laughs> this totally ties into my next segment. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So they talk about how the most common predators appear to be humans of all ages. However, prior studies haven't examined differences in rates by characteristics like sex, age, body mass index of the human predator. Uh, and so they decided that they would search Google for reports and images of amputation. And they noticed that there was an increase of these reports and images in late March through mid-April each year. And it appeared to be highly correlated with the date of Easter Sunday each year. The incidence of auricular amputation in confectionery was 531 per 100,000 rabbits. And uh, the increase... <laughs> around Easter <laughs> appears to be due to the increase in the transmission parameter, i.e. the increase in population of confectionery rabbits coming into contact with humans yep. is higher around Easter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so is this just like in, like in the supermarket or is this like at home? Like, so it's like you're walking past... <coughs> yeah, there's rabbits everywhere. Mm-hmm. We cannot help ourselves. <laughs> Unclear about the causal mechanisms of the phenomenon... Uh, so it could be that human predation is seasonal and rabbits suffer due to convenience during peak time. <laughs> it might also be that the increased availability lends itself to increased opportunity for humans. Yep. Uh, there's also, you know, a high prevalence of perpetrators, 59 to 89% of re- humans reporting committing auricular amputation at some point. Mm-hmm. Widespread. So, so do you think there's like a personality dimension to it? Quite possibly. Because like, like, like as in like where you, where you whether you eat a chocolate rabbit from the top, the, from the, 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 the proper way, which the is proper the way. ears, <laughs> yeah. or elsewhere. Yeah. So, you know, like on the front. It, quite, it could be. So, so last year we had uh, Liz on the show with the forensic mm-hmm. thing and she said, and so you asked the question about whiskers or tails. Yes. W- Maybe this is. Which both you, you and prefer? I said the correct answer which is tail. if you could have one you would have a tail yeah and liz went whiskers whiskers do you think that liz 
She maybe she's a no starting point prep. Or would she like eat from the bottom? Oh, she had t- she's a tail or feet maybe. <laughs> I'm gonna message her and <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you know. But so this article ended with with some hope. Okay. Reconstructive op- options need to be considered. <laughs> And, but they need to actually think about the anatomy of the chocolate rabbit ear, whether it's in an upright or lop position. Mm. This is important. But uh, just The upright ear is far more satisfying. It is. But despite these variations, aiming for symmetry in the reconstruction and drawing on the shape and size of the other ear, if still present, mm. uh, is ideal for informing reconstruction. They speak about the degree of deformity that also impacts the probability of reconstruction. It seems needlessly complicated. Yeah. So partial is recommended if the damage is less than 10%. If it's up to two-thirds and if the amputated oracle is still available, it can be autografted to the original location. And then for larger losses, the use of a donor rabbit. (laughs) 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 Or reconstructive prosthesis should be considered. (sighs) Fortunately, it's possible to buy replacement chocolate ears, the prostheses. um, And these appear to be most available at the time (laughs) that most of the damage occurs. (laughs) So they conclude with a very wise remark. The futility of such an exercise should be considered as well because often the rest of the rabbit soon succumbs to a similar fate. <laughs> oh, well, that is that is a classic. Informative. Thing, things we came across. <laughs> out of it. So, uh, look, just so in <laughs> conclusion, just going further down, no pun intended, the rabbit hole of, uh, <laughs> of silliness. Yep. So last pod we did one on Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. We looked at personality disorders and we diagnosed the characters of Harry Potter. As um, we've all done at some point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and through that, uh, Amy and I came to realise that there was a problem with the DSM and the way it was written. Mm. So Amy and I have got a letter for the American mm. Psychiatric Society, which I thought I might just read out. Absolutely. A perfectionistic proposal to the Personality Disorders Committee for the DSM-6 on the wording of the Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder Criteria. Dear APA, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is currently in its fifth edition, and with each revision, changes are made in response to scientific consensus and other concerns to make the DSM more usable in real-world settings. The difficulty in classifying and describing mental disorders is evident in the need to continually refine and revise the DSM, and each new edition has its strengths and its shortfalls. Recently, we have become aware of a shortcoming in the current edition that, to our knowledge, has not been discussed in the literature to date. And it is this that we wish to propose to pontificate about and have prepared a possible solution to the problem. Whilst giving a podcast on the application of the DSM-5 personality disorder criteria to the various persons in the films and books of Harry Potter or in the Potterverse, it became clear that there is a problem in the way in which the criteria for the obsessive-compulsive personality disorder is written. Currently, the criteria are described as such. A pervasive pattern of preoccupation with orderliness, perfectionism and mental and interpersonal control. Clearly, those who are reading the DSM-5 about this disorder will be either working with someone who has this particular trait or disorder level or pattern of problems, or will be interested in this disorder because they themselves exhibit traits or full-blown symptomology of this disorder, as which we take issue with the placement of orderliness and perfectionism and suggest that it will be less upsetting and distressing to the reader or listener with OCPD traits or symptoms if all the words starting with P are placed together. <laughs> Specifically, reversing the order so it reads, a pervasive pattern of preoccupation with perfectionism, orderliness, and mental and interpersonal control. 
This would be yeah. a, <laughs> this would be a particularly minor change, but would clearly be a far more satisfying state of affairs for any sufferers of OCPD when reading about this disorder. It would also perhaps give others who do not suffer from this disorder but have to read out such preposterous prose an understanding of the perfectionistic pressures people with personality problems experience, particularly when having to listen to people perform in public or in a psychology or psychiatry practice. Silent piece. We also wish we also suggest that a working group be formed to identify other P words that could be substituted in the other parts of the OCPD criteria. Pleasingly, the first three criteria contain P words. One, preoccupied point. Two, perfectionism. Three, productivity. But there is a perverse absence of P words in the remaining five criteria. Car regards, Amy Donaldson and Hunter Mulcair, Two Shrinks Pod. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our show. And uh, don't forget to rate, review us uh, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Mm-hmm. And we will hopefully... <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs> And if you've got any other P words that you think we could include in the OCPD criteria, please let us know. Mm. We will collect all the P words. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. See you next time. See you next I was, I was, I was going to try and like see if you turn serious, and I was going to try and disrupt you. I did put some more you could information see, you in. Could see I could see I what you were going to do there. Like, I couldn't do it. Yeah, you can't. Remember.